This is Maine Current's Independent Local News, Views, and Culture. I'm Amy Brown. Today we're continuing our series on racism and hate groups with a recent presentation sponsored by the Maine Multicultural Center. Reading from their website, quote, The Maine Multicultural Center is a community-driven group representing Bangor area business, cultural, and educational organizations. We promote community enrichment and economic growth by attracting, retaining, supporting, and integrating people of diverse cultures and backgrounds into Greater Bangor. Since fall 2016, we have provided welcoming services for new Mainers while celebrating and promoting the racial, cultural, and ethnic diversity that already exists in the region. The Maine Multicultural Center offers presentations, conversations, community and teacher workshops, a database of resources, and opportunities for those in and around Bangor to meet neighbors and new friends, whether they are recent immigrants or longtime residents, end quote. Presenter Dennis Chinoy is a co-founder of PICA, which stands for Power in Community Alliances, a group that focuses on economic and social justice issues. Among other things, PICA has been a driver behind the Bangor sister city relationship with Carrasque in El Salvador, MAFCA's partnership with Farmers in El Salvador, and WERU's sister station relationship with Radio Sampool, a community radio station in that country. And Dennis Chinoy has played a role in all of those endeavors. His presentation last month, sponsored by the Multicultural Center, was titled The Deep Roots and Bitter Fruits of White Supremacy. It has been edited to fit in this time slot. So I'm, I'm neither a historian nor an expert in race or a diversity trainer or any of that. Um, my, it's really kind of our collective work in peak over the years that, uh, that we've all been steeped in these issues of uh, race and class and privilege. And so I'm, I don't think I'm going to be offering any groundbreaking ideas here, or original thinking. What we try to do, and some lot often in PICA, is we try to curate some ideas so we can present them in intelligible form in ways that, uh, you know, in the service of our community's needs for ways to think about and talk about ideas that need more talking about. And so a multicultural community forum like this seems like a fitting place. Some of these thoughts are um, inescapably political, of course, and hasten to say it doesn't reflect main multicultural centers' opinions, except the opinion that it's all worth talking about. Uh, despite uh, an expanding national conversation about racism, in our society. Until very recently, there was still a reluctance to name out loud a crux of our social dilemma. It's been relegated to the margins, mainstream dialogue, as though it were a fringe phenomenon rather than the elephant in our living room. But then Charlottesville crashed into our homes. And then a shout out during the presidential debates as 75 million viewers watched and listened. And then, in more flamboyant attire, as the nation looked on, white supremacy invited itself into our national living room and wrecked the furniture there, too. So now, we look it in the face, say its name, see what it's doing to our country, 
no longer able to squeeze it back into the toothpaste tube as just background noise. Perhaps we're all ready to see it as peoples of color have seen it all along. The white underbelly of the endemic racism, latent or flagrant, that either props us up or keeps us down. Our nation's founding was rooted in an assumption of white Christian supremacy. So it should not come as a surprise that it resurfaces when conditions are right. And a bit later, we'll look at what those conditions are. For now, we'll take a look at those two different but related tap roots. Related because early on, Christian and white traveled together. Different because these religious and racial origins have different stories and teaching them apart can help us see what we're dealing with and how we got here. So in this first of four sections, we'll look at the religious roots of white supremacy, which go at least 600 years deep. So let's just take a quick sixth century whirlwind tour, then end up back here and now. Like all European colonizations of the New World, our own Atlantic settlements were launched by Christian monarchs who understood their claim to new lands and their peoples to be rightful, even righteous, sanctified by the Pope himself as a project to establish and advance the faith. Here's Pope Nicholas V in 1443, 50 years before Columbus sailed, being pretty specific as to what he was licensing in God's name. The divinely authorized directive is to claim, convert, and subjugate as necessary. A papal fiat enunciated as a doctrine of discovery, subsequently understood by all Christian nations as a mandate that applied to their colonizing projects. Whether by Spanish Catholic conquistadors, bankrolled directly by his and her majesty in the Caribbean and points south, or later, in our case, by Protestant settlers sent forth by private investors in a royally chartered company, seeking to establish lucrative trading partners with the mother country whether by New England Calvinists in search of a land to establish a holy community without being harassed by a more mainstream Church of England back home, or by more traditional Anglicans in Virginia. The shared vision was that theirs was to be a Christian country, to be more specific, a Protestant country, governed by Christians, and in accordance with their particular understanding of God's word. Writ large, across the continent, this was our imagined manifest destiny taken for granted by the founders and by those to whom they passed the torch. God's plan, a Christian country spanning sea to shining sea. Accreting all lands west through purchase or treaty from other European powers who likewise presumed they had every right to transfer their own rights of dominion over the lands and indigenous peoples 
they had originally acquired through that same doctrine of discovery. The doctrine unilaterally proclaimed by a medieval pope and embedded into US law nearly 400 years later by the Supreme Court in a landmark case called Johnson and McIntosh. Then settling those lands claimed by hand-me-down transferred discovery rights by sending forth waves of well over a million homesteaders to a million and a half acres. Hard scrabble pioneers setting out to make new lives for themselves. Having no reason to doubt that the lands they were granted were our governments to bestow. For them, a ticket to a new life, hard won by honest, rough work and having no reason to imagine themselves to be a colonial expeditionary force. But for the indigenous nations, not a party to the deal, a slow motion eviction notice to be played out over decades, enforced as required by violent vigilantism and US Army troops. A history of genocide, were it to be told by those who didn't share the Christian nationalist vision of manifest destiny and of dispossession as implemented by settler colonialism, a term none of us likely learned in the elementary schools we attended. This credo, the conviction that the United States is and must always remain a Christian and Christian governed nation, no matter who else inhabits the land and what they might think about that, has persisted since the founding. But while the message of national obedience to the Lordship of Christ is no longer one embraced by a majority in today's more robust, multi-religious, multi-ethnic society, it continues to be preached not only by a faction of evangelical leaders and media figures, but by some of the highest government officials in the land. Majoritarian disregard of that message these days evokes a sense of victimization in those who hold that we are and ought to be a nation exclusively devoted to worshiping Jesus Christ. Even offering season's greetings rather than Merry Christmas can meet with indignation in some quarters as an act of aggressive political correctness until what seems to be to some like just a simmering kerfluffle flares into a serious statement of purpose juiced by white Christian nationalist groups who have always been in the wings. And we see concerted backlash by those who feel deputized by a commander in chief and others to take their country back. Here's what happens when acolytes take that advice. You may have missed this particular video clip in January, but I found it pretty stunning. In the midst of ransacking the House of Representatives, these particular patriots intent on stopping the steal, ostensibly of an election, but more broadly, 
the theft of their white Christian country, abruptly stop everything to have an impromptu prayer session, asking divine help for their mission. White Christian nationalism is, of course, a minority sliver of a many splendored and diverse religion. We're focused on it here not because it's representative, but because its strident prominence right here and now demands our concern. So we're going to leave that racial, that uh, religious roots for now, and um, we'll talk about racial roots, part two there. Um, what's fascinating, I think, anyway, and at first counterintuitive about the racial roots of white supremacy is that unlike religious entitlement, which preceded our nation's founding by centuries, claims to supremacy based on race hadn't much been invented, existed at all, but actually had to be invented, which may sound a little bizarre, but stick with me here. Let me just take you back to the Jamestown colony in the late 1600, in 1600s Virginia. So the indigenous population, some of whom were enslaved, had drastically diminished as they succumbed to European diseases to which they have no immunity. And the numbers of indentured servants are also drying up, just as the need is escalating for an expanded workforce to grow labor-intensive tobacco on the plantations. Virginia planters import large numbers of African slaves to do their work, which is an employment practice that doesn't conflict with their Christian values since these slaves are heathens whose enslavement was authorized, if you remember, by the Pope himself. However, Africans' numbers now constitute a significant minority of the total population, rising close to tenfold in 30 years. And the threat and fear of bloody slave revolts is starting to spook the gentry. And then in 1676, black and white indentured servants in Virginia jointly stage an insurrection against the colonial governor and burn much of the Jamestown colony to the ground. Alarmed at this interracial alliance called Bacon's Rebellion, wealthy white Virginia planters in response deployed the most time-tested of strategies to maintain their power, divide and conquer. But to establish such a hierarchy, they had to highlight a distinguishing trait, potentially divisive characteristic of no previous consequence, and that trait was race. Calculated to drive a wedge between a coalition of allies to compensate one segment of aggrieved colonists with a sense of superiority in order to pacify the resentment of an upper class to induce a poor underclass of colonists to identify primarily not as poor, but as white. The benefits accruing to whiteness could not be primarily economic because sharing the wealth was not on the agenda. The caste system they envisioned was designed to create a steep divide in social status between those whites leading lives of hardship and blacks who would be rigidly and brutally consigned to the very bottom. W.E.B. Du Bois 
centuries later, described that white economically subordinate classes, what, what white economically subordinate classes would receive as psychological wages. If this idea that race was invented is one that you balk at, you are not alone. Leaving colonial Virginia for just a second, say hello to Isabel Wilkerson, an acclaimed writer about race, whose latest book is entitled Cast, in which she relates the story of her own initial befuddlement. She writes, a few years ago, a Nigerian-born playwright came to a talk I gave at the British Library in London. She talked with me afterward and said something I've never forgotten. It startled me in its simplicity. You know, there are no black people in Africa, she said. Most Americans have to sit with that statement. It sounds nonsensical to our ears. Of course, there are black people in Africa. There's a whole continent of black people in Africa. How can anyone not see that? Africans are not black, she said. They are Ogbo and Yoruba, Ewe, Aka, and Deble. They are not black. They are humans on the land. That is how they see themselves, and that is who they are. They don't become black till they go to America or come to the UK, she said. It is then they become black. Likewise, for centuries in Europe, what divided people was not the color of their skins. The English, French, Spanish, Germans were constantly at war with each other. Scandinavians pillaged Irish villages. Christians persecuted Jews. Catholics and Protestants massacred each other. Blood spilled and servitude imposed had as little to do with skin pigment as with eye color or shoe size. And just as there were no black people in Africa, there were no people in America who thought of themselves as white. When Europeans colonized those 13 colonies, they came as Englishmen, Welshmen, or Scots, Germans, Corsicans, or Poles, Mennonites, Catholics, Lutherans, Jews, and Anglicans. Besides their economic station, it was national, ethnic, and religious identities that determined how they conceived of themselves and compared themselves to others until a threatened colonial elite constructed a new hierarchy with powerful incentives for disparate groups to subordinate their separate identities under a new racial banner of whiteness. This is what theorists mean when they refer to the social construction of race, the fallacy that an incidental physiologic trait, the level of melanin in the skin, correlates with significant social, behavioral, or intellectual differences between people. From this false pseudoscientific premise of race, it is but a tiny step to racism, ascribing positive or negative values to people identified by that otherwise meaningless trait, then elevating or debasing these so-called races according to those purported differences. And so it was right from the inception of our country, whiteness and blackness were born together. Mirror images, Siamese twins, defining themselves by what they were not. 
one's existence would not possible without the others race and its offspring racism based on a mythical reality mythical to be clear because there's as much genetic variation between individuals of the same continent say europe as between individuals of different continents say europe and asia and africa for pertinent examples the dna is essentially all the same you're listening to main currents on werufm this is pika co-founder dennis chinoy with a presentation called the deep roots and bitter fruits of white supremacy recorded on March 9th by the Maine Multicultural Center in Bangor, sponsors of the event. So, to get back to our beginnings, having created the black and white creature called race, within six years of the Jamestown Rebellion, the Virginia House of Burgesses, through a series of slave acts, set about conferring on whites a position of dominance and consigning blacks to live lives of degradation and bondage. For starters, indentured indentured servitude for blacks previously for a set period was by law extended to lifelong servitude, that is, slavery. Resistance to the orders of a white person were now punishable by whipping. Specifically, The law exacted 30 lashes, well laid on. Owners who killed their slaves in the course of punishing them were not to be held liable, enshrining impunity for white-on-black violence into law. The law's chapter and verse read, If any slave resists his master's correction and shall happen to be killed in such correction, the master shall be free and acquitted, of all punishment, as if such accident had never happened. So this is the Black Lives Do Not Matter Act of 1705. Since heathen status was a fundamental Christian justification for slavery, the dilemma of how to contend with baptized slaves was reconciled by simply declaring that baptism would no longer exempt blacks from bondage. The most enduring and radical legislation was this. Centuries of English common law held that the father's legal status determined that of his children. The Virginia legislature switched paternal to maternal And that change now consigned children of enslaved women to be slaves themselves, creating slavery that would be hereafter hereditary for generations without end, providing as well license for white men to make sexual use of black women with impunity. A hundred years after hereditary slavery was codified in Virginia, That institution was now embedded in our national constitution. We the people knew who they were and who they weren't. Black lives mattered only in as much as three fifths of their enslaved numbers would be added to the census of the white population 
to increase the number of representatives that Southern states would have in Congress. Fast forward another 100 years or so, here's the 13th Amendment, abolishing slavery. An amendment whose six word phrase, except as a punishment for crime, was then deployed as a pretext to criminalize living while black as states saw fit, arresting and convicting African-Americans for virtually anything, then jailing them or imposing fines they could not pay, thus subjecting post-emancipation blacks to chain gangs and debt bondage. And still over a century later, with a cash bail system and pressured plea bargaining to modern day mass incarceration and to this very day, to the ever-present threat of extrajudicial killings. This racially skewed criminal justice system has parallel historical correlates of prejudicial and exclusory laws and policies to degrade living conditions for people of color in every other facet of life as well. Each predicated on the white supremacist belief that black lives matter less, are worth less, deserve less. From unequal justice to inferior education, due to dilapidated schools, property tax-based school funding, gutting public education, school choice option for wealthier families, substandard housing from rigid segregation to redlining to so-called urban renewal projects, Restricted unemployment from outright discrimination to exclusion based on inadequate educational training to denial of credit from outright post reconstruction theft of assets to effective exclusion from the from the GI Bill that made widespread home ownership possible for whites, but not for blacks to restricted loans for black businesses from slavery to reconstruction to Jim Crow, to today's gerrymandering system where politicians pick their voters rather than voters picking their politicians, to the aggressive campaigns ongoing this very moment designed to disenfranchise black voters. All policies, not just attitudes, each amplifying the damage of the others, the very opposite of a safety net. These are an interlocking chain link weight dragging down the living conditions of an entire race. We can reasonably call the social pyramid constructed by white supremacy nourished by it both, a religious and racial roots, by its original full name, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant supremacy, whose apex has broadened slightly to include wealthy white Protestants of other ethnicities. Here's a broad strokes depiction that lacks nuance, but provides an overview. It features a gray scale with various degrees of privilege and acceptance as various other nationalities, ethnicities, and religions over the generations have migrated their way 
along its gradients. In the top tier, there are differing shades of white, distinguished by the cultural passport of whiteness, blended with different levels of economic comfort. While non-white peoples and more recent arrivals languish in a zone of closed doors, more stifled opportunities, and cultural hostility. But one constant throughout our history is that African Americans as a demographic have remained firmly mired in the basement of this triangle under the weight of the multiple systemic structures designed from the very inception of our history to cast blacks out and keep them down, even as their stolen labor provided the economic foundation of the nation's wealth. So, in addition to the heavy burdens of structural racism, white supremacy has also afflicted us all with another derivative cultural illness with a life of its own, compounding this explo exploitation. An overlying oppressive layer of both insult and injury created by the mythologies of racial stereotyping originally fabricated by white people for white people to rationalize the practice of slavery. Since who among us wouldn't prefer to view ourselves as virtuous and our actions honorable, acting in accordance with God's natural law, to, to reconcile morality with enslavement, the hybrid religious and racial roots of white supremacy produced another bitter fruit, the wholesale slander of Africans as an inferior race, depicting blacks as docile or dangerous or childlike or shiftless, ape-like, hypersexual, savage, shuffling, carefree, simple, bestial, rhythmic, insensible to pain, primitive, impulsive, ungrateful, and all the rest. These white descriptions of purportedly innate characteristics of black people were invented, but not arbitrary. Some were to paint victims, not just as genetically inferior, but as a species apart, in order to not view barbaric treatment of other human beings as uncivilized. Many are behavioral characteristics that oppressors encounter from people subject to the whip and chain, forced labor, sexual abuse, exploited people making best use of the various strategies available to them of active, passive, or creative resistance, appeasement, deception, secrecy, some were natural reactions to being enslaved. Once inoculated into our culture, this germ of denigrating stereotypes multiplied and invaded every legal, social, cultural, even scientific pore in our body politic. It was disseminated by writers and clergy, philosophers and presidents, scientists and physicians, academics, businessmen, journalists, by publicists, politicians and government officials to every hearth and home. Even the minds of many anti-slavers 
whose opposition to bondage was rooted in a sense of humanity and justice, but not a belief in racial equality, were nurtured in this racist bra. Hear from the emancipator himself. From our founding to our present, this disease of racial stereotyping has over generations infected white minds with this pejorative bias and has of course afflicted black minds as well, which from childhood can't help viewing themselves to some degree through the cruel distortion lens of the dominant culture that surrounds them. This is not just antebellum American history. The outcome of the Civil War did little to eradicate this illness in its continuing forms. The epidemic of post-Reconstruction lynchings, continuing over many decades well into the 20th century, grisly, public, exemplary tortures and executions, often festive occasions held in broad daylight, while sheriffs and police looked away or looked on, represented the most flagrant and defiant face of white supremacy, designed to underscore who was still in charge and who shouldn't forget it. And if we are to say its name, we should also pause to look at its face and listen to take just how deep-seated and vile is this curse of white supremacy before moving on. So here's Abel Maripol's poem, Strange Fruit, written while lynchings were, lynchings were still fresh in mind. And here's Billy Holiday singing his lines. <laughs> strange and bitter fruit. A cultural disorder, this old, this deep, may wax and wane, but does not disappear. Over three centuries, it is mutated into a secondary and distinct social malady with a life of its own and is embedded in our social DNA. One need not subscribe to an ideology of white superiority to harbor this endemic cultural virus. One need only live in a society with white supremacist roots. Likewise, one needn't personally have had anything to do with the origins of white supremacy in our country to benefit 
from the structural advantages that white people, natural born or immigrant, enjoy by virtue of their skin color, or to be infected with a racial bias, flagrant or subtle, that surrounds us all. It's not our fault, but it is our inherited cultural genetic illness for us to contend with, first step of which is acknowledging the diagnosis. And likewise, one needn't be well off for skin color to confer benefit on us. Racial privilege and economic disadvantage often coexist. Remember, it was wealthy Virginia planters in the first place who codified race-based discrimination to deflect and compensate the grievances of their poorer white colonists. But that concept can be a tough, a tough sell to white folks who themselves don't enjoy a life of leisure, who may not have much interest in Virginia colonial history and who might reasonably bristle when portrayed as privileged. White supremacy confers relative, not absolute privilege. Privilege is hard to appreciate if, as most of us do, we look upward at those with more assets rather than below us to take in that we are cushioned by the floor of a caste structure that spares us situations far worse. Because as bad as it is for so many white folks, it is far worse, tenfold worse for black families. The legacy of cumulative generation race-based deprivation This session has been focused on white supremacy's deep roots and bitter fruits, as the title said, not a game plan for how to begin to undo the legacy of centuries of oppression. But for starters, one way forward is to recognize that the two main variants of these bitter fruits have different qualities. And so remediation requires different approaches, the right tool for the job, as it were, the damages wrought by systemic racism won't be undone solely by examining our own personal biases and trying to change our attitudes. Remedies for those different systems of education, criminal justice, housing, employment, lending, glaring income gaps, voter suppression, political representation, all in need of repair are specific and concrete policy changes. In contrast, the pernicious effects of racial stereotyping embedded in our culture over centuries are resistant to legislative fixes. Rooting them out calls for an intensive, extensive, open-ended detoxification process that asks each of us and all of us to unlearn what we've learned to recognize those implicit biases, to have those uncomfortable conversations with others. This is just a schematic roadmap for how to begin to disentangle ourselves from our sorry legacy. The fallacy of race and its own twin racist progeny, white superiority, 
non-white inferiority and all the suffering it's caused, but the social evolution we need now to make us all whole is more messy and uncharted because the dynamic that made a racial hierarchy based on white supremacy successful in the 17th century colonies remains with us today, but is on shakier ground. Here's Lyndon Johnson describing W.E.B. Du Bois' psychological wages and their trade-offs in more down-home terms. If you can convince the lowest white man he's better than the best colored man, he won't notice you're picking his pocket. In fact, the entire economic bottom 50% of our population here in red has steadily been getting its pocket picked now with just half the share of national wealth that they had 50 years ago and falling. But recent white generations are now incurring at the same time a sharp cut in those compensatory wages that underwrote the system's stability in a shifting multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-religious, multilingual, soon to be majority minority society, first class status first-class social status in a white Protestant English-speaking country that is baseline privilege, which if nothing else, so many white folks have always been able to take for granted is no longer assured. That is an implicit breach of contract, a betrayal even. And when people who could always imagine that they were at least cultural insiders, start feeling like outsiders, they cast themselves as victims, sometimes in apocalyptic terms. The driving emotion is that of existential threat. Here's a billboard with a more straightforward message than the usual subtext from those feeling historically, from those historically advantaged now feeling victimized, now mobilizing to take back our country and our values, our language, our culture, and our rights. When incited by the highest levels to act to take back the theft of what they are given to believe is rightfully theirs, people who feel victimized and aggrieved will storm barricades break down doors, seek out traitors. This is literally violent pushback against all those they have been given to believe have hijacked their country and threatened their place in it. Blacks, immigrants, Democrats, communists, the deep state, coastal elites, Jewish financiers, take your pick. And with today's social media echo chambers, combined with the disintegration of fact-based civic discourse, it's not clear just where we are headed. Where we go from here is certainly a whole other conversation. 
Again, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture on WERU-FM. This live online presentation, The Deep Roots and Bitter Fruits of White Supremacy with Speaker Dennis Chinoy, was sponsored by the Maine Multicultural Center in Bangor on March 9th. Up next, some of the discussion that followed. I, if, if people haven't watched the Netflix documentary series, it's a six part series called Amend. Um, it's, it's narrated by a lot of um, black African, well, black actors and, and starts out with Will Smith. Um, it's so incredibly powerful. It overlaps a lot of what you have done, Dennis, and, and expands it. And one of the things that floored me was it, a lot of it is at the beginning is talking about the 13th and 14th amendments and the work of Frederick Douglass to convince Abraham Lincoln to change his mind. Because when he freed the slaves, he, he was under the impression that separate but equal was the way to go. And he wanted the black slaves in this country to leave the country. And he offered them to go and start their own country in Costa Rica, which was like mind blowing. I had no idea. And Frederick Douglass had to convince him that there was another way to go about this. So it's, it's an incredibly powerful series. I'm on episode four right now. So, um, but it's, it's, it's so worth seeing. Absolutely. Dennis? Yes. Just one, one simple little step that people can take right now to maybe start to help undoing this is write to your senators because HR1 got sent over last week to the, to the Senate, which is the re restoration of the voting rights and encourage them to vote yes to get that legislation in place. Yeah. I have a comment. Um, Hey Dennis, uh, thanks so much for doing this. Um, so I just wanna go back to kind of uh, the beginning and uh, Barb brought up the settlers heading west um, and I've kind of been mowing this over the whole time and um, it, it also, your language also struck me as generous to the, to the settlers heading west. Um, and I, I feel like what, is important about that kind of to build on what Barb said is that um, the, the problematic idea there for me would be that um, the, the settlers uh, didn't bear any responsibility for genocide of Native Americans, that it was the political leaders or the people who maybe bear more of the responsibility, um, but that the the general sort of white population that was swept up in this policy um, sort of doesn't bear responsibility. And um, I would give them responsibility. Um, and so fast forward, um, I would say the same about, uh, you know, mobs of, of thousands of white people, sometimes the entire community that would turn out for a racial terror lynching uh, in broad daylight, sometimes at the courthouse lawn with um, food trucks and um, postcards being printed. 
with with pictures of the lynching, um, people would, um, you know, get those postcards, send them to each other. Afterward, they would take home uh, body parts as souvenirs. So that that mob of of white people sort of standing by. Um, similarly, I would give them some responsibility. Um, and the reason that I think that is important for today is that I think there's a tendency today to give the responsibility for white supremacy and racial injustice to others to say that, you know, because some of the things that Donald Trump says are outlandish or, you know, other people wave Confederate flags or wear horned helmets um, or sometimes say explicitly racist things that, um, that this is theirs. And so I think that's important because in, this, in the same way as those settlers heading west, I think that um, this, this is ours. Um, and so I wanted to say that because those things that you listed that people could do, I feel like it's easy to see those as things that sort of we could do out of the goodness of our heart to address someone else's problem. Um, rather than things that, you know, we urgently need to do because this is, this is something that we are, are cause, causing and perpetuating, um, you know, by, by our inaction. Um, and, you know, I just think back to uh, James Baldwin saying that a civilization is not destroyed by wicked people. It is not necessary that people be wicked, but only that they be spineless. Thank you for that, Ursa. I, I, I guess what I, I'd want to just say to that, that um, I probably didn't communicate what I meant to mean in terms of settlers. And, and thank you, Barbara, again for your, I mean, all I meant to mean was that I suspect that the settlers were not as conversant as was Supreme Court Justice John Marshall with the doctrine of discovery as the formal reason that they could be given free land by the government. I didn't mean to mean that they were not, that they didn't consider the First Nations scum or racist or worthy of genocide, really. So, I mean, I think there's, that might be a difference without a distinction, but yeah, thank you for, for bringing it up that way. Anyone else? John. Yeah, I, I want to first really thank Ursa for what he said so eloquently. Uh, and to kind of add to that, I think the hardest piece of this is, is really uh, understanding the truth of what's happening and understanding the truth of our own roles and the truth of what we're carrying around, not necessarily consciously, that we act out. And that's tough. Because it's uh, it that process destroys can destroy a lot of pleasant illusions we have, uh, but I think that's essential. And I think if we really work on that, then the things we need to do sort of become more obvious. Because we're seeing them every day. Then, uh, but that's the hard part is it, not finding it. You know, it's easy to make fun of like someone said the guys with the with the horned helmets. It's harder to look at our own position and and how we just what what's involved in the position we're in right now. I actually have something to add to that. 
Um, I'd like to go, I followed the protests online all year and I basically, what I saw is that one thing I could do was have conversation, you know, sitting here on my computer to have conversations. Like I wanted to talk to racists, but then when it comes down to like, well, who do I talk to? Oh, my neighbors, <laughs> like <laughs> people who live in my apartment complex. And then it gets to be like, uh, I don't want to ruin our relationship or our situation because I have to live here. Um, but the people I, I mostly follow people in Seattle and Portland and they, to that, they would say, yeah, well, that's what we have to live with. You know, every single day we're living with racism right next door to us. And it is a big deal, but they were like basically calling on the white privilege to be willing to like make that sacrifice in order to help. Um, it's kind of like good, good cops stop bad cops. And I was just thinking good people stop bad people. <laughs> like have to be willing to like sacrifice. That's it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Just been thinking as white people <clears throat> would benefit from those four, 600 years, we've benefited from it. Um, and our lives today are, you know, our situation today, our comfort, um, our moving around in a little superior position, um, not really thinking about the color of our skin uh, is is thanks to that. So I don't know. I, I think it's worth thinking about um, what might our life be like if we didn't have that privilege, and uh, maybe as a way to to think about shedding some of it because. Like that, that great quote that we read there. Um, you know, it just might feel like oppression or like we're losing something um, if things were more equal, and we might, you know, instinctively without thinking about it, not really want to go there. Mm -hmm. yeah. <clears throat> Good thought experiment, right? That was an edited version of The Deep Roots and Bitter Fruits of White Supremacy with speaker Dennis Chinoy, followed by a discussion among the participants, recorded on March 9, 2021. WERU thanks the Maine Multicultural Center in Bangor for making the recording available for our listeners. The MMC provides, quote, welcoming services for new Mainers while celebrating and promoting the racial, cultural, and ethnic diversity that already exists in the region, end quote. Their next live Zoom presentation is coming up tomorrow evening, April 7th at 6 p.m., and it will feature a panel of new Mainers talking about their experiences working with literacy volunteers. It's also going to be available via Facebook Live. You can find more information about the event on their Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Maine Multicultural Center, 
or you can go to their website, MainMulticulturalCenter.org. Dennis Chinoy is co-founder of PICA, Power and Community Alliances, also based in Bangor. And you can learn more about their work at PICA, which is P-I-C-A dot W-S, or on their Facebook page, facebook.com slash PICA in Maine, P-I-C-A in Maine. Also be sure to check out the Maine Currents archives on WERU.org for other recent programs on similar topics and for Wabanaki Windows and Dawnland Signals for local Indigenous perspectives. You've been listening to Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm Amy Brown. Join me here on the first Tuesday of every month at 4, and stay tuned now for Radio EcoShock, coming up next, only here on your community radio station, WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, and streaming online at WERU.org.